Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 247. My name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Maikino, our Father, our King. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to study your words and to bring ourselves to a place that is necessary for us so that we can begin to equip ourselves, not just for end time scenarios like we do in this first study, but uh, and not just for the Trinity studies like we do in the second study, but Lord, we, we read through your words and we study them um, so that we can be pleasing to you. It's really the Ezra principle, which is stated that he studied in order to do, in order to teach. So we study, Lord, so that we can um, uh, be doers of the word, not just hearers only. We want to be ambassadors of your kingdom. We want to be uh, those people who have lives that are pleasing to you. And your words outline our blueprint for living. And it's not just about what you've told us to do, but about how you have enabled us to be able to do it. Namely, it's not good enough to study the word intellectually it's not good enough to just know what the words say it's not good enough to just uh peel back the hebrew and the greek and things like that those are all fun exercises but in the end without the activity of the holy spirit in our lives without his engagement without him opening the understanding to us and unlocking it and giving us the power to walk it out well then uh there's only so far that just reading will do so we seek to read and to study, but it's because we want to um, allow your spirit to uh, make the words come alive and to empower us to walk it out. Thank you for the topics. Thank you for the students who join me week after week. Thank you for the uh, insights that you're uh, sharing with me so that I can share with other people. I know I don't have all the answers, but I know you do. So I'll continue to look to you as the source and the one who um, preserve the words and the one who has um, the insights that you're uh, giving. And uh, I'll continue to make myself um, available so that I can uh, share them with other people as I find them out myself. So be with us tonight as you always are. Uh, your faithfulness is immeasurable and we'll, be con- uh, we'll continue to give you the praise and glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining me for these live internet studies. My name is Arlen Lyman Hanavi. Let's jump right into the first segment of this hour and a half long study. It's given over to a topic uh, that I've titled Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End Time Events. And you see on your screen, we're looking at a topical index that I put together of the study. And so far, it's been the uh, index that we've been using. I haven't changed it in a little while. And the Topic we're on tonight is Topic 9, Yeshua's Olivet Discourse, Part 2, which is basically a study on Matthew chapter 24, working away kind of verse by verse. We have been utilizing a few different resources in this particular study. As you can see on the topic index, we're working our way towards the book of Revelation. That's ultimately where this study is taking us, but we're going back through the necessary sections of the Bible that began all the way back in the Tanakh, right? What Christians call the Old Testament, and working our way up through the relevant passages in the Apostolic Scriptures, what most people call the New Testament, and then we're going to dead end at the Book of Revelation and just go kind of verse by verse through that section. So, having um, gone this far, made it up this far, we're now looking at this section in Matthew. Let me see if I can find it. There we go. Where you can see on your screen right now, 
Yeshua is giving his this, giving this these instructions to his disciples. Remember, they asked him, you know, when is, when will the sign of your um, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And he begins to give them all of these details that let us know that he's not going to tell them exactly when he's returning, but what he is telling them is that there are going to be signs and there are going to be indicators and there will be events that will unfold that give us the sense of the nearness of his return. What we've also learned as we've read down through these notes and read down through Yeshua's words and taking them at face value is that there are aspects of his return that can be known by his followers and then there are aspects of his return that are going to leave the world at large in the dark and so he introduces this idea that there are two people groups there are two groups that are going to be present on in any given generation when the return could happen and we've compared and contrasted these two groups the group that's in the dark we can call them the unbelievers, the world at large, the earth dwellers, those who dwell upon the earth. And they're not looking for Jesus' return. They're not looking for any type of sign to uh, indicate that he's returning because they're not looking for him at all. They don't have their lives set in a way and orchestra, uh, organized in a way that they can leave room for a belief in God or belief in Jesus or trust in his word, etc., etc. So they are the wheat... I'm sorry, they are the tares in Matthew chapter 13 of the parable of the wheat and the tares. They are also sometimes referred to as the enemies of God, right? I mean, the full-blown, not just people who are not looking, but people who are actually hostile to the gospel. Um, the, the, the seeds of the adversary, the seeds that the enemy sowed. I mean, sometimes it goes in that direction. The people that are going to bear the full brunt of the wrath of God when he returns, when Yeshua returns, and when God begins to establish his kingdom on earth, he has to pour out his wrath and his punishment and his his uh, retribution upon repent, unrepentant, rebellious mankind first. But the second group that Yeshua is always aware of, and we need to be aware of it as well, are the wheat in that same parable in Matthew 13. These are us. These are the believers. These are the brethren that Paul refers to in his letters over and over again. These are... Um, people who are described that we're going to see in Thessalonians, who are not in the dark. They're not children of the dark. And therefore, when we encounter this motif, this example, this picture, this description where Yeshua talks about his return, uh, overtaking the world is like a thief who, who, who shows up unannounced to the inhabitants of the house. Paul picks up on it as a, you know, the thief in the night verbiage. Peter picks up on it as well in his letters. Well, the thief in the night happens largely, I think primarily, to the unbelievers. But it also is going to be that way for perhaps maybe those who are the professing church but aren't really genuine Christians. Those who are just attending church but they're not really believers. They are playing church. So when we start looking at this passage that we have in front of us, he opens up this section with about that day and an hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And then he describes the state of affairs in the world, and he's generally describing general humanity, generic humankind, those who aren't looking, and those, in fact, who in Noah's day were among those who were probably witness to what was going on, so they could see Noah's building the ark. In one sense, you could see they had a front row seat to the sign that something bad was going to happen. And yet they ignored the signs. They ignored 
um, the preaching that Noah was doing, right? Read the book of Hebrews again. So he was a preacher of righteousness, and they simply didn't believe him that an impending flood was going to come and wipe everyone out, except for those who would get on the ark with Noah. And sadly, only Noah and his wife, his two, his three sons and three daughters, uh, and their wives, I mean, and the animals, right? They're the only ones, only ones that, that made it through that calamity. So Yeshua says it's going to be the same way. Those in the, the, before, in the days before the flood, people are going to be just going about their daily lives, not caring about all of the signs or not understanding. Like Yeshua says, they didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. So there will be signs that people will be able to see. I mean, clearly, uh, all of the events that Yeshua described up until this point are something are things that the world can't ignore. You know, the wars and rumors of wars and the, the famines, the pestilence and all of the strange occurrences in the sky, the political unrest, the uh, social unrest, you know, the things that are going on around us, it's, it's impossible to ignore them, and yet we just don't understand unless we have insight given to us by the Holy Spirit. So then we turned into this section starting, this discussion starting in verse 40. At that time, there'll be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Verse 41, two women will be grinding in the, in the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. And we turned into this discussion by a pastor. Let me just show you his notes here. By the name of Thomas Ice. This is a little bit of a review to catch up to where we, we're at right now. And we found that from his perspective, the, the phrase second coming or parousia in the Greek, the second coming of Christ, is interpreted by many dispensationalists as basically two events, but, but um, and some even call it two second comings, uh, where Jesus is going to return twice. Once he's going to return to rapture the church and take us to be with him. And then the second time he's going to return at the end of the tribulation to um, return with the saints to uh, uh, set up his kingdom to destroy the Antichrist and then set up his kingdom and things like that. So what this author that we're looking at, his name Thomas Ice, what he proposes is that Matthew is not referring to the rapture. Instead, Matthew is referring to the second coming at the end of the age, the end of the seven-year tribulation that he, he uh, recognizes. And therefore, the taken and left verbiage is a reference to taken in judgment and left behind to enter into the kingdom. So, from his perspective, there's it's, it's twofold. It's important to understand that you're catching this. There are two comings or two aspects to his coming, if you want to describe it that way. And there are uh, those who will be taken in judgment at the second coming and those who will be left behind to enter into the kingdom. So, that's his perspective. We also noticed that when we look at David Guzik's interpretation, that's the one you have on your screen now, let me read that real quick, and then we'll jump straight into Tim Haig's. Um, we already read most of this, so I'm just going to read it quickly. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Since the day and the hour of his coming are unknowable, Jesus' followers must be on constant guard for his coming. And then David Guzik introduced this, what he's calling the second coming dilemma, which really isn't a dilemma, he's just teasing us. He talks about how that the Lord's coming will be at an unexpected hour. Is it at an unexpected hour, or is it positively predicted? And when we talk about positively predicted, we're working with this idea that in the book of Daniel, and let me turn to one of the slides that you can see. This is a post-trib rapture chart that shows the, oops, I don't want post-trib, I want pre-trib. There we go. This is the classic dispensational pre-trib rapture view that most Christians hold to, most pastors will teach in your churches. 
On the far left of your screen, we've got the pre-trip rapture, where the two black, well, the two arrows, the black and white, are kind of touching one another. Far left, pre-trip rapture. That's one aspect or one coming. They call it sometimes. And then the seven-year God's wrath uh, takes up the bulk of the chart. And then the far right, we've got second coming with the black arrow pointing down. That's the second uh, time that Jesus comes to Earth, or the second aspect of Him coming to Earth. And when David Guzik talks about how that is it unknown or is it knowable we have to remember that and let me jump to another uh chart let me find it here it's going to be this one we've looked at this before so i'm just going through this quickly if you remember from daniel's prophecies that started all the way back in daniel chapter 2 and worked their way through chapter 7 8 9 10 11 and 12 of his book you remember that the angel that was speaking with Daniel specifically told Daniel that from the midpoint of the week, of the 70th week, this last seven-year time period on planet Earth for mankind to have his rebellious way before God comes and shuts that program down, Daniel was told that from the midpoint of the week to the end of the 70th week, right, the seven-year period, there would be 1,260 days for the rule of the prince. This prince was identified, as we've, saw, as we've seen in previous studies, as the Antichrist, the Little Horn, the Eighth Beast Empire, and this uh, beast that John describes coming up out of the sea, if I remember it's out of the sea in like Revelation chapter 13. Well, this time frame is clearly three and a half years, right? 1260 days, prophetic years, prophetic um, time frame, 1260 days according to a biblical reckoning, not according to our own Gregorian calendar. But it's not too far off, even if you use the Gregorian calendar. Well, we've got 1260 days that Daniel marked out until the time frame that the Antichrist would kind of reach a point where he could no longer really exercise his rule and authority wasn't going to be destroyed yet. That wouldn't take place until the 1290 days until the destruction of the prince. So he's got a little extra 30 days where he can do something, but not very much. And we're going to find out that the book of Revelation actually fills in with the details of those 30 days after the 1260. And then we've got another slice that Daniel was given 1,335 days until when? The rule of Christ, the rule of Messiah. And that, that pushes the um, time frame out another 45 days, giving us a total of 75 days from the end of the seven-year period until the return of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. So given this detail that we're looking at, these details, then we absolutely can know when Yeshua is going to usher in the the kingdom we can know those days and uh, i i mentioned kind of boldly in my last teaching if we take this at face value and read it from a literal hermeneutic right that the days aren't going to mean spiritual days or something like that then we can know maybe we may we don't know exactly is christ going to come back on the 1260 is he going to come back after the 1290 or is he going to come back after the 1335 so we might not know that but we at least have daniel's Time frame to give us the uh, days leading up to the ushering in of the kingdom. And so, going back to David Guzik, he, we talked about uh, that's why he says, is it, is it at an unexpected hour or is it positively predicted? Meaning, when Jesus will return based on the days that Daniel gave us. And this is a challenge because Jesus says no one will know the day or the hour. Well, Guzik continues by saying also, when it comes to this kind of paradoxes or dilemma, 
when we're looking at the world in large, is it going to be business as usual or is it going to be worldwide cataclysm? And then we also have these details about is it going to be meeting him in the air like 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, or is he coming with the saints like Zechariah 14, 5? So either way you begin to examine these details about Yeshua's second coming, you begin to realize that, if, that there are details that are given that seem to contradict one another in the Bible, or at least contrast one another. I don't want to say contradict. And how do you resolve all of those details? Well, according to William Barclay, which is quoted by Guzik here in our notes, Barclay describes one aspect of the difficulty. It is in two sections. It, the return, the parousia. And they seem to contradict each other. The first verses from Matthew 32 to 35, this is a commentary on Matthew, uh, seem to indicate that a man can tell by the signs of nature when summer is on the way, so he can tell by the signs of the world when the second coming is on the way. The second section of verses, however, says quite the def- quite definitely that no one knows the time of Jesus' second coming, speaking of verses 36 to 41 in Jesus' Olivet Discourse here. And he even gets emphatic, Yeshua says, not the angels, not even Jesus himself, but only God, which, as I mentioned last week, is a rather odd statement by our Lord when we compare it to the fact that the angel was giving not only Daniel all of the details, right? He tells him how long, how many days, an angel tells him that. Jesus says, no one knows, not even the angels. And then John has numerous uh, copious amounts of detail given to him in the book of Revelation down to the 42 months, which we're going to see here. I'll just turn to that chart in a moment. And a lot of the information that John is recording, obviously it comes from Yeshua. That's It's the revelation of Jesus. That's what the whole book is about. But a lot of the information is conveyed through, you ready for it? Angels. So Jesus says, the angels don't know. Even only He's the only one that knows. And yet, when we read through Daniel, we've got angels giving details, spoiling it, right? Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Jesus said no one can know, not even the angels, but the, the angels are spoiling the whole story, right? I'm, I'm being facetious, obviously, so just run with me. But when we get to the book of Revelation, the angels are spoiling it again. And when we look at one of these charts, let me find the one I want. It's going to be this one. We looked at this last week as well. These are details that Revelation that uh, either angels were given to giving to John in the book of Revelation or Yeshua gave him directly. We've got this idea of the three and a half years, which is the which we've determined, I believe, as uh, corresponds to this final three and a half years of the seven years. But look at all the details that are given 42 months in Revelation 11, 2, 1260 days in Le- uh, Revelation 11, uh, 3, the very next verse, 1260 days in Revelation 12, 6. Time, times, and half a time in Revelation 12, 14, and then 42 months in Revelation 13, 5, and 7. All of these time frames that are listed as a, at the bottom of the chart says, don't be confused. It's all about the same amount of time expressed in different ways. Three and a half years, 42 months, 12 or 60 days equals time, times, and half a time. It's all the same time frame. Well, again, that's a lot of detail when you go back and read through all those chapters. Of Revelation. That's a lot of detail to match Yeshua, to, to kind of conflict with Yeshua telling his disciples, no one knows the day or the hour. So, what do we make of all that? Well, here's what Guzik uh, proposed. He says, the dilemma is resolved by seeing that there are actually two second comings. And I, um, I mentioned that I don't like that phrase, two second comings. Um, classic dispensationalists, as we're going to find out from Tim Haig, even has a uh, Three times that Yeshua is, is coming to earth. The first time when he was born and lived and died and was crucified and, and resurrected and ascended. And then the, the second and third time are 
once at the rapture and the other time at the second coming. I would rather uh, propose that we're talking about one coming, one parousia, one return of Messiah, but it does definitely has bookends. The first bookend would be what classic dispensationalists call the rapture, and the second bookend would be what classic dispensationalists or pre-tribbers call the second coming. So if I were to look at a chart like this, which we looked at last week, we kind of concluded with, we can see the comparison and contrast between the dilemma that we're describing, the rapture on the left, the second coming on the right, and we can see that clearly there are differences in these events so different that they must not be the same event even though some people purport that they are the same event that they're that we're going to go we're going to be uh, uh sucked up into the air and then we're going to come straight back down and that'll be the second coming something that affects and there's no time frame in between those two events to allow for any significant um a chronology or any detail but i'm gonna um purport i'm gonna propose based on my own studies and it's not my own obviously it's it's agreed upon by many other well-meaning authors that there is a significant time frame between the rapture and the second coming but it's not seven full years like uh, dispensational pre-tribbers would imagine rather in fact according to the pre-trib uh pre-wrath model that i hold to it's probably you know maybe a year and a half something like that at the most could be even as short as uh, a few half a year six months something like that and i'll tell you where i get those um numbers from when when the time comes but so we looked at this chart and again you can just see i left the chart on the screen long enough for you to be able to read it on your own and, and ignore what i was talking about um to see that they're at least two separate events so going back to guzik he says that um there's two comings. One is in the air for the church, commonly known as the rapture. The other is for the world coming with the church, commonly known as the second coming of Jesus. And the quote-unquote contradictions, right? Remember I said he was just teasing us. He doesn't really believe there are contradictions. But the contradictions in Matthew 24 and much of the rest of prophecy are often solved by seeing that they're really a, refer a reference to two. And he uses the word two in quotes there, so I'll give him that. Because I think he's, he's trying to say that no, it's not really two full-blown returns. I think he is... Um, indicating like I am that we're talking about one return with two aspects, but two returns of Jesus. And this, I believe, is solid theology when he talks about that the contradictions can be resolved by seeing that there are two fill-in-the-blank for whatever word you want to use. If you want to use Cummings, that's fine. Two returns, that's fine. I myself don't personally hold to that, but let's say two aspects, two bookends, two significant parts that are uh, described by Scripture. And that, I believe, is like i said good solid hermeneutical teaching so we continue on i'm rushing through this part because i want to jump right into uh tim haig's notes um then he talks about about uh, uh david guzik does um the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not expect and again uh the language that uh that uh guzik uses about you know, quoting Jesus that the, there's no way for men to know or it's going to be unexpected or, or, you know, the thief in the night principle like that. Largely, A, it has to do with the rapture, which isn't actually um, part of Daniel's time frame there, meaning that the, all those 1260 days, 1290 days, 1335, that's not rapture language. That's um, 
information that Israel is going to need so that she can uh, be prepared for the abomination of desolation at the middle midpoint of the week, and so she can, she can go through the brunt of Antichrist's persecution, as well as the brunt of the wrath of God, in order to bring Israel to her knees so that she can be ready to meet her Messiah and go into the Millennial Kingdom. So, what we're also learning, and I'm kind of tipping my hand there, as you can see, is that a lot of the end-time details include Jesus' impact to the faithful followers that are labeled the church, and Jesus' impact to those saints that were recognized in the Old Testament as the people of God, the people of Israel, that are still on the scene today, and yet have not joined to themselves to the body of Messiah, thus they're unbelievers, and yet they're still covenant members in God's books, they're on God's books, and they're still uh, very, very important players when it comes to end-time details and end-time prophecy. So if we were to take the uh, going back to this chart or this chart if we were to take these two events and and localize them to whole people groups we can say that the rapture on the left primarily deals with gentile christian church members or i mean because that's what the, the majority of um, the body of the messiah is made up of is the gentile church there are messianic jews within the body of messiah don't get me wrong however they're vastly outnumbered by the gentile world at large who in who I'm describing here is the body of Messiah. The rapture is primarily for the body of Messiah who exists at the time, both in um, those who are dead in Christ, who are going to be resurrected first, right? Paul tells us this mystery, as well as those who are alive at the time when Yeshua comes back and are going to be caught up to meet the Lord and the, res the resurrected dead in the air, and then we'll all be together. So this is primarily a church event. I'm going to use the word church there to describe the kind of the garden variety definition of Gentile believing um, folks around the world who are either who would be already died and gone and are sleeping in the ground uh, or wherever they're buried or whatever, right? Um, just died. Or, and along with those who are alive at the time, like Paul described the mystery, which, as I side, side note, is a mystery and was a mystery to Daniel. Of course, that makes sense. Daniel wouldn't see the the catching up of the live believers to meet Jesus in the air, thus what what we today call the rapture would have been a mystery to Daniel, although the resurrection, which is synonymous with the rapture, was not a mystery to Daniel. It was foretold in, in Daniel chapter 12 and in other places, right? Job and Isaiah also talk about rapture. I'm sorry, also talk about resurrection. So resurrection is known in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, but rapture, to the extent that rapture is, is synonymous with people who are alive catch, uh, being caught up to Yeshua in the air, that part is mystery. Well, rapture is primarily for believers, right? Israel as an unbelieving people group doesn't get raptured at the first of these book bookend events that I'm describing. They don't go up to meet the Lord in the air. Why? Because they're not ready. They need to go through a significant amount of suffering and pain in order to bring them to the place where they are ready to meet their Messiah, which will take place at the second coming, the right side of your chart that you're seeing on the screen, not the first side. So that's kind of the mindset we have to kind of read through these passages uh, with and realize that raptors for believers at the time and those who are dead in christ and second coming is with the believers who have already been raptured and 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 resurrected and it's also at that point in time to 
rescue Israel finally, and to when I say rescue, I mean she'll be in the clutches of Antichrist uh, at that point in time uh, easily. She'll also have been brought to the place where she is finally ready to meet her Messiah, and she's repentant. She'll look on him whom she's pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, right? Quoting uh, uh, language of Zechariah chapter 14. So going back over to Guzik, looks like we finished the part that I was really concerned about with Guzik. We don't really need to read through the rest of the notes here, because actually when we go back over to Matthew and look at look past the two women grinding at the middle, one will be taken, one will be left, and things like that. We mentioned, I mentioned last week that I take the perspective that Matthew 24 the, the passages that the, the part that we're looking at here is actually a reference to the rapture not to a second coming i realize when i say second coming that that is the title given to the overall time period of yeshua coming back is parousia there's only one so don't get me wrong i'm not saying there are two there is only one parousia and if you translate the word parousia as second coming then i would say there's only one second coming but the second coming is divided into those two bookends rapture on the left second coming on the right and the rapture is the the part that initiates the second coming and the second coming on the far right of the chart that i showed you earlier is the part that concludes the second coming if you want to call it that well who is going to be taken and who will be left it depends on whether you think this is rapture or whether you think this is second coming so with that we had one final slide that i showed you last week that fits basically the 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 theology that i hold to the rapture in this chart refers to the christians who are taken that's the taken principle taken language in yeshua's words in matthew two will be taken one i'm sorry two will be in the field one will be taken one will be left the christians at rapture time are taken and the wicked at the rapture time will be left behind i think tim lahey got it right in that aspect comparison and contrast to that at the second coming of christ which is by my reckoning at least more than a year later at least more than five months we'll put it that way and i'll tell you why later but at least five months later but certainly not seven years later i don't hold to a seven-year tribulation a seven-year wrath of god model but if you're pre-tribber and pre and and um uh classic dispensationalists like most christians are you're going to see this these two events on my screen as separated by seven years okay but the principle is the same whether you smash this into like i said about a year and a half or two like i do or extend it all the way out to seven years like most christians do either way the principle is generally the same rapture christians are taken wicked are left second coming the wicked are taken and christians are left to go into either uh millennial kingdom or to go into new jerusalem while the jews occupy the millennial kingdom something like that so that's what's going on now with that we can turn right into tim haig take the last half of our show and deal with this idea from tim haig's perspective you're listening to live internet studies with uh your host uh ariel ben lyman hanavi and we are working our way through a study entitled eschatology a biblical study of end time events we're working our way towards the book of revelation but we're going through the relevant passages in the tanakh the old testament with a view towards revelation that which includes the book of matthew chapter 24 mark chapter 13 luke chapter 17 and luke chapter 21 we'll eventually also pull in a little bit of detail from first and second thessalonians there's some relevant information for us in first corinthians chapter 15 from paul and then eventually there's also some notes 
from Peter in his two letters, and then we're ready for the book of Revelation, basically. But let's look at Tim Haig's notes. This is available in a commentary that he wrote to the book of Matthew, which is available at his own resource, which is torresource.com. And uh, this is a, it's basically a seminary level commentary, verse by verse, through the book of Matthew. I'll flash a little graphic on the screen in post-production, which shows the uh, um, URL to his website and things like that in case you're interested in purchasing this. It's not a very expensive um, commentary, so it's well within most people's budget. But let me read down through a portion of this. In the, in the first part of this commentary to Matthew 24, this is what Tim Hank has to say. Let me see if I can highlight this. And Nope, this won't work. Let's see if that works. Nope. So I'm not able to do my little trick of where I'm highlighting each word that I'm saying at the time. You just have to follow along with your eyes. Here's what Tim has to say. I'll see if I can read without stopping. This whole matter of the sequence of events which Yeshua describes in the Olivet Discourse brings to the table the idea of his imminent return and how the word imminent is variously understood primarily by evangelicals. Generally, Tim says, the English word imminent means impending. And if applied to the return of Yeshua, would mean that his coming was near or impending. But that is not generally how evangelist, evangelical theologians use the word in connection with return with the return of Yeshua, also commonly called the parousia, a Greek word, uh, parousia meaning presence, coming, or advent. He goes on to say, in eschatological dis- dimension or discussions, eminent has a sense of at any time, quote-unquote, meaning that the return of Yeshua could happen at any time. Those who hold that nothing else in world history needs to occur before his return take the concept of imminent to mean at any second, that is, his coming could take place right now. Other evangelicals understand the imminent return of Yeshua to mean at any period or in any generation, opening the door to the possibility that there may still be events prophesied in Scripture which must take place before the parousia. Tim Haig continues, This brings up the question about the, the question of the signs, he put that in quotes, pointing to the return of Yeshua, and particularly the signs about which Yeshua speaks in Matthew 24. Various systems of eschatology, or more correctly, hermeneutics, have been formulated to answer this question. Well known among many evangelical groups is the classic dispensationalism. And let me just interject. Again, dispensationalism is this idea that was put forth by a gentleman, I believe his name was John Darby, something that I've had. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up and flash a little um, graphic on the screen that confirms my suspicion. But if I remember correctly, dispensationalism has its roots in, I think it's like 19th century Christianity, 18th century. It's not a label that's generally uh, given to uh, first century Christianity, first century Christian theology concerning end-time events. But dispensationalism, among other things, teaches that the church in Israel are a hard um, separated group of peoples, meaning there's not overlap. There are two distinct people groups of God, and God's program with the church does not overlap with his program for Israel. And thus, uh, God has to rapture the church away from the earth in order to pour out his, in order to begin his dealings with Israel, so that the two people groups are separated from one another instead of having any overlap. That's one aspect of dispensationalism that 
along with Tim Haig, I myself also soundly reject. I don't really hold to this idea that there are these dispensations where God dealt with different people groups in different ages so that there's no overlap between the people groups. Dispensationalism also likes to use language that refers to the Old Testament as a, an era that's bygone, that's been uh, exhausted at this point in time in history up to the point where the dispensation of grace is where we are now living with the church age. But once the rapture takes place, the dispensation of Israel and grace, or Israel in the Old Testament, uh, the dispensation of Torah, will start up once again, at least enough to bring Israel to a place where God can deal with her. So, Tim Haig is not a proponent of dispensationalism. I got to give you that um, aspect or else you won't understand what he's going to say. He's going to now show why dispensationalism in its interaction with rapture is a perspective that he rejects. So, he says the first coming according to the dispensationalists was the birth of Yeshua and his incarnate life upon the earth, culminating in his ascension back to the Father. His second coming, he's got that word in quotes, second coming, that phrase, is in two stages. Notice this is similar in his description about what we just read from Guzik and what we also previously read from uh, the pastor uh, Thomas Ice. His second coming, Tim says, is in two stages. Speaking of the rapture. Uh, he calls it the rapture. This is Tim Hague's language. The second coming, the two stages are the rapture, which takes place before any of the signs Yeshua describes in our Matthew text, which removes only the church. He's got the church in quotes there as well, out of the world and could take place at any second. It is therefore referred to as the quote unquote secret rapture. That phrase secret rapture is very popular among uh, dispensational uh, evangelicals, pre-tribbers, pre-millennial, pre-wrath, pre-millennial, I'm sorry, pre-trib, pre-millennial. And so the secret rapture is something that's described as the imminent return of Christ, which does not require any sign to precede it, meaning it could happen at any time. It could happen before I finish my Oh, sorry, couldn't finish the sentence. Jesus came and raptured me away. You understand what I'm trying to say there. So that's the details that we're, we're following through with what Tim Higgs is describing. He continues by saying that the second phase, again, quotes around that word second phase, is Yeshua's return at the end of the millennium to consummate Earth's history. Thus, in classic dispensationalism, there are actually three comings of Yeshua. Right, The first would have been at his uh, first coming when he came as a baby in the manger and then lived his life and then was uh, crucified, resurrected, ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of Father. That's the first coming, if you want to call it that. And then the second coming would, have, would be the rapture. And then the third coming will be the uh, second coming, third coming. I mean, it sounds really strange, but you know what I mean, at the end of the age. So that's why uh, Hig is trying to say there's actually three comings. He continues, but the fact that no passage of Scripture unambiguously teaches a quote-unquote two-stage understanding of Yeshua's return weakens the dispensational system so significantly, as you ready for this, to render it unusable. So Tim Haig rejects dispensationalism, and he's going to go on to say that dispensationalism is commendable, though, in its attempt to harmonize texts which appear contradictory, but it does so only by forcing an interpretation upon biblical passages, which, when understood in their clear grammatical or historical sense, cannot bear. 
And then um, he goes on to conclude in this little section, a better approach is to understand the signs that we read about in Matthew 24, given by Yeshua in our passage as having a progressive sense rather than being a sing- being singular in their focus. This is commonly seen in the prophet- prophetic method of the prophets. For instance, Daniel describes events that take place only centuries from his time, but which also describe uh, and our patterns for events in the last days. Remember that prophetic telescoping aspect is what Tim is describing here. Um, for instance, Daniel's okay, I already read that. Antiochus IV, that is Antiochus Epiphanes, thus becomes a portent that is a shadow or a warning or a sign, a type and shadow, for events in the last days. Antiochus is a portent of the anti-Messiah in the eschaton. And in the, in other words, when we read, and we did this in my own study here, which I agree with, Antiochus Epiphanes is a type and shadow of the little horn, the Antichrist, the beast, the man of lawlessness that Paul describes. And the way we understand the Antichrist who is to come is by reading through the life of Antiochus Epiphanes, who at the time, even down to certain details, fulfilled partially some of the prophecies that were given in Daniel. So it was an event that was near to Daniel, and thus we can understand it that way, but at the same time, it was an event, it is an event that is far away from Daniel, near and far at the same time. That's the prophetic telescoping. I'll put this in a little graphic at the end of the, or at the, in, in the post-production so you can see it. In the same way, again, signs would, the signs that would signal Tim Higgs has, <coughs> excuse me, the signs that would signal the coming disruption of the temple in 70 AD may be viewed as similar, as describing similar signs marking the events in the eschaton. When he says eschaton, he's just talking about where we get our word eschatology as well. He's talking about the end time scenario that has not happened yet. So Tim Hicks still believes something's coming down the road. He's not a preterist. Remember, preterism believes that most, if not all, of the events of Daniel, the Old Testament prophecies, the book of Revelation, etc., were all fulfilled primarily in 70 AD with just a very few minor details, perhaps the second coming of Christ, the destruction of Antichrist at Armageddon, or maybe at least the establishment of the ushering in of the kingdom, or maybe not even that sometimes. But just almost all of the events that we read about in the Bible were all fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and etc., etc., which I do not hold to. I am a, a futurist. I am not a preterist. Well, Tim Haig is also not a preterist. Uh, I, he would be, he would fall into the camp of futurists as well, just like me. But he's rejecting dispensationalism, and he's he's saying why. But he is at least saying that there are signs that are pointing to different things that take place in the end. So you can't throw dispensationalism completely out altogether because there are a lot of details in dispensationalism that are accurate, but the uh, the theology as a whole has so many problems that Tim Hague says that it's unusable. So he concludes by saying, given this perspective, the sense of the imminent return of Yeshua is taken to mean at any period or in any generation. So let me go back up just a bit and show you that when he ta- when Tim Hague talks about classic dispensationalism and how that no passage in scripture unambiguously teaches a two-stage understanding of Yeshua's return, and this is what weakens the dispensational system, we have to understand that I believe what Tim Hague is saying is that if you look at scripture as a whole, there are not two comings that we should be looking for. There's one coming. 
And we're primarily basing this theology and explanation on the Old Testament, the Tanakh, right? Remember, Daniel was not shown to um, uh, Cummings in Daniel chapter 7, 9, 10, 11, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, etc. Basically starting in, in chapter 7, but we can go all the way back to 2 if we need to of Daniel. The point dealing being here is that when the ancient when the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter seven, for instance, there's only one approach. There are not two times that Daniel saw the this Son of Man coming up to approach the Ancient Days and then it's given the kingdom. So in the broader picture sense, I want you to understand that there's only one coming. There's one parousia that was foretold in the Old Testament and that is also described in the rest of the Bible, what we call the New Testament. There is only one coming of Messiah. However, Tim Haig has to agree that there are details that are given at the either the onset of the uh, second coming and the outset of the second coming that we're simply, we, those of us who hold to this idea that there's two aspects, two bookends, that we're simply recognizing that this is not simply one event. There are parts of the second coming that must uh, be relegated to one side and other parts that are to the other side. So I don't know if Tim Haig is going to flesh that out when he talks about two stage and things like that. He doesn't like that phrase two stage because he says no passage teaches it. And I think what he's pushing back against is the classical, dis classic dispensational um, language that talks about two second comings. So I think that's what he's referring to there. But continuing with Tim Haig, we want to now ask the question, who will be taken and who will be left? And is this part of Matthew talking about the rapture, or is it talking about the second coming? And Tim Haig, if I understood his notes correctly, he does believe in what we're going to call a rapture, but he doesn't believe that it's pre-tribulational. He's more of, I think, a post-tribber. Let me pull up the, the um, chart so you can see. Here's the classic view, pre-trib. Rapture takes place at the far left of the chart. Before the seven years even begins, it snatches the church away so that she doesn't have to go through any tribulation, i.e. God's wrath or Satan's wrath. It's the full seven-year length for that wrath. And then it's the far right. Jesus comes with his saints to establish his kingdom, along with those who were raptured in the um, in the event that was on the left side of the chart. That's pre-trib. Uh, we have a contrast. Let me see. Uh Going chronologically, left to right, we have a contrasted view. This is the view I hold to, and we'll flesh this out in great detail in my next few topical studies. Let me, well, I won't show it to you, but topically, when we get to topic number uh, 10, 11, and 12, I guess I do have to look at it because I always forget. 10, 11, 12, yeah. 10, 11, 12, we're going to be looking finally at the, um, the, uh, rapture and i'm going to make a case for the pre-wrath view so going back to sorry that's why i didn't want to do that because i was going to lose my place there we go there we go so in this view tim haig would probably i'm sure he's aware of the pre-wrath view but there's four kind of main views out there pre-trib pre pre-trib mid-trib pre-wrath and post-trib moving from left to right in the in the way of the charts that we're seeing i don't have mid-trip pulled up here i'm not interested in showing all of those views at this point in time that's not my point my point is simply that if we chart where rapture takes place on this chart if we we pinpoint it it's you can easily see that it's not at the beginning of the seven years it's not at the midpoint but it's not at the end either that's the point it's somewhere in the three and a half 
year mark that we would call the seven uh, the second half so it's kind of three quarters of the way into the seven year tribulation if you want to call it the seven year tribulation which i don't so this is not what tim haig is espousing to I, I i believe if i'm if i understood his teachings correctly he is holding to i believe what many messianics hold to which i don't oddly enough it's very um unusual that i take a break from tim that i make a break with tim Haig because i agree with him with so many other things but it seems to be that eschatology is not one of his strong points at least that's my perspective no disrespect to your teachings tim so i believe he holds to a post-trib rapture if he's even going to use the word rapture at all which many messianics don't like they certainly shy away from the view of that it's a secret rapture which i myself also do no matter which rapture view i hold to i don't believe it's secret it is definitely announced by by signs and by shouts by the voice of an archangel by the trumpet of god by the brightness of yeshua's coming when he splits the sky by the sky splitting apart like a scroll by the sixth sign sixth seal sign with the sun moon stars earthquake a roaring of the waves etc etc it's clearly not secret in my understanding the lightning flashing from the east to the west so it's not secret but there is a rapture in my understanding tim Haig, i'm not sure if he even holds to the ver the word rapture in this classic sense but i believe what he's describing what he's going to go on to describe is that the rapture and the second coming are very very so closely right on top of one another as to be almost synonymous but we still have a going up and then a coming back down very close to one another but this view is post-trib it's after um believers and uh israel have to go through everything that's being poured out on planet earth and it's uh how will god protect us well it's what's known as the goshen principle which we'll get to in time just like in the Exodus story where God protected Egypt, uh, Israel supernaturally from the plagues that were befalling Egypt, he's going to do the same thing with Israel and the church when the time comes. He'll pour out wrath on planet Earth. He won't rapture us away. He'll instead protect us from the wrath that he is pouring out. And then at the far, at the far end, we'll quickly go up and then quickly come back down again because the resurrection has to take place. Tim Haig agrees that there is a resurrection and nearly every Christian does and, and for good reason because it's explicitly taught in scripture. So there must be a resurrection at the very least, a quick going up and then a quick coming back down. I think that's what Tim's going to go with. So let's pick up his discussion about who's taken and who's left during this time period that no matter when you put it at the pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, or post-trib, wherever you place the rapture, who is taken and who is left and why is it relevant for us? So here we got Tim's notes and we'll finish our study tonight. We've got about 15 minutes left and I think I can hit this in 15 minutes. And then what we'll do next week, I'm just showing you in advance, we'll turn to some more details about the timing of Yeshua's uh, second coming with this no these notes from this blog post about the Feast of Trumpets and its Christian significance. And uh, playing with this idea that we don't know the day or the hour, but we can know the season, there are details that were given in the Bible and other places, particularly to the Jewish people, which are, um, uh, what do we say, kind of preserved for us in the festivals and the feasts that we read about in Leviticus chapter 23, what Christians would call the feasts of Israel, but really they are feasts of the Lord. Well, there are themes that surround the feasts that actually correspond and parallel 
some of the themes related to the second coming of Messiah. And it, I, we've looked at this a little bit, but now I want to turn headlong into it, and uh, that'll kind of conclude our study on the on the all of the discourse, and we'll, then we'll be able to jump into the rapture. So let's um, the rapture timings. Let's see what we can do about uh, uh, reading through Tim Higgs' notes here. This is starting in uh, looking at Matthew 24, starting at verse 40 and 41, which Tim Higgs re- Tim has reproduced for us in his commentary on Matthew, which again is available at his website at uh, torresource.com. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. All right, here's what Tim has to say. These two verses are in perfect parallelism with each other and supply additional illustrations of, one, the way in which the judgment that comes at the parousia will be unexpected as seen by, two, the manner in which people will be going about their daily business without concern at all for what the future holds. Remember, I also talked about the fact that there will be two people groups when Yeshua comes back, people who are unaware, the the unbelieving world at large, and then there will be the church who is not and I don't mean the professing church, I mean the genuine, true, the faithful church, who truly are are ready to meet their uh, their uh, Lord and Savior. We who are of, of those who have the Holy Spirit inside of us and are therefore being prepped for the return. So we're, we're aware of the signs and things like that. Tim Hague is going to kind of talk about um, these pairs of groups as well. And that's what he's trying to say is that the two two will be walking in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. He's trying to say that um, the force of Yeshua's words are that he's describing the two people groups that will be um, alive during um, the time period of Yeshua's coming, second coming. So, the manner in which people will be going about their daily business without concern for all of what the future holds. Those those are the unbelieving world, the uh, the tares in Yeshua's Matthew 13 parable. The two illustrations encompass both genders, and in each case the pair are doing the same thing. Yet, external similarities are stripped away by God's judgment. He continues by reminding us that in Luke's parallel, which is found in 1734-36, it has in some manuscripts three doublets, right? Adding one in verse 34 to Matthew 2, which is, I tell you that on that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken, the other will be left. He he, he remarks that the addition of the word men, the two in one bed, in the KJV and ASV uh, 1901 version of your uh, English translations is unnecessary and not represented in the Greek, the word men there, which simply has literally uh, asantai duo epi uh, clean ace um, mias. There will be two upon one bed or one couch, uh, is what the Greek is trying to say there. Um, he continues, there's therefore no need to suppose that Matthew left this third illustration out because it was thought to incorporate a homosexual relationship, in which both, in, in which case both would fall under judgment, right? Where he says two men in one bed. So don't get confused, it's just two, uh, two in one bed. The word men isn't even in the Greek. If Luke's third example is taken at face value, it may describe two people sitting on a couch, since um, clean A can describe a bed, a cot, or a couch. Uh, or a couple sleeping in a bed. It is to the latter than, I'm sorry, if it is the latter, then, uh, then we have in Luke's third example, mixed genders as opposed to two women or two um, men and two women in the other scenarios. So let's keep reading Tim Haig. Uh, he says, why is one taken and the other left? We're not told immediately, but the larger context makes it clear that one was prepared and one was not. Now, 
I need you to follow along with me. Don't get lost. We're talking about who is taken and who's left. And Tim Haig is not directly telling us when this event takes place. He's not saying that it is at rapture or it is at second coming. But he's going to indicate later on, and I do believe, even if he doesn't say it directly, I believe he's indicating that it's rapture. And therefore, the language owes to what Tim Egg is going to, he and I are going to agree that it is at rapture that the believers are taken and it's during, and, and the, the, the wicked are left behind. And he's not even going to deal with um, what happens at the second coming. So again, it's this chart right here that Tim Haig, I believe, is going to describe. I read through this a few times because it was a little bit confusing to me, but I believe this is what Tim Haig is going to describe. So just look at the screen for a second again. Rapture. Christians are taken. Wicked are left. Second coming. Wicked are taken. Christians are left. So with that in mind, let's read Tim's. Uh, keep reading Tim. Why is one taken and the other left? We're not told immediately. But the larger context makes it clear that one's prepared and one is not. But how are we to decide whether judgment is pictured as coming upon one taken or one left? Remember, Pastor Ice that we read about says that the time frame in reference in Matthew 24 is not rapture. It is second coming. And therefore, the one taken is the one taken in judgment. And the one left behind is the one left behind to inherit the kingdom. But... Tim says, how can we decide this? He says a number of factors may aid us in this decision. Number one, the previous verses in Matthew 24, 37-39, focus attention upon the flood as a prototype of the eschatological judgment. Those who are left upon the earth, i.e. not taken into the ark, perish in the flood. And the verb to take, as I already pointed out in verse 39 of Matthew 24, where we have the flood came and took them all away, is a different verb, right? Uh, a form of the verb um, airo in the Greek, than the one used in the in the following verse, the very next few verses, which is verse 40 and 41, which is paralambano. And that was a significant difference that I myself pointed out already. Uh, the pastor Ice also pointed out, but he sees it not the way that Tim Haig and I are seeing it. So I want you to understand that Tim Haig and I are in agreement in this aspect, looking at these two verbs and seeing the way that they're used in the passage to describe who's taken and who's left. Tim Haig says that Noah and his family rise above the floodwaters in the ark and are therefore saved from the destruction because the ark preserved them from the destruction waters. So that's part of his explanation of why he believes that, <coughs> excuse me, why he believes that taken in Matthew 24, 37 uh, through 41, the, the word taken, when it talks about the, um, the flood came and took them all away, and then two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Tim Haig believes that the Christians are the ones, I'm sorry, the, uh, yeah, the Christians are the ones, the believers will be taken, meaning the two that are walking in the field. Christians will be taken and the unbelievers will be left behind. He goes on to con he goes on to say in, in second of all why he holds this perspective is he's looking at the context. The verb translated left, which is afim, <clears throat> excuse me, afiemi in verse 40 and 41 is often used by Matthew in the sense of abandoned or forsaken, right? Um, um uh, in other words, follow from Matthew twenty four, Matthew four twenty, 
22, Matthew 5, 24, Matthew 8, 22, Matthew 19, 29, 23, 38, 20, and 26, 56. So that's another reason why uh, the context leads Tim to, to believe that Matthew is referring to believers that are taken in rapture or taken by as in rescued and the uh, left behind are those who are abandoned or forsaken uh number three tim hicks says the verb translated take which is paralambano in these verses right uh when it talks about two will be two will be walking and one will be taken one will be left this verb which was picked up by the pastor ice but used in a different way is often or used it for the different time frame is often used by matthew in a positive this is tim higgs words in a positive rather than a negative sense thus yeshua takes peter james and john to the mount of transfiguration in, in uh, matthew 17 and also matthew 20. likewise joseph and mary are warned to take the infant yeshua to Egypt and also to take him back to Israel when the danger was path, passed in Matthew 2 and um, verses following there. Indeed, Tim says the primary sense of para lambano is to take along or to bring someone along, right? Remember, it's made up of two words, and I'll just show you them here on my screen since I've got it pulled up. Here we go. This is Strong's number 3880, para lambano to receive from, and uh, to take uh, from, to receive from, uh, to take to, to receive, to acknowledge, to admit, to take with me. And when we look at the help word studies, where it shows the, the, how the word is broken down into its two parts, the first part of the of the phrase para lambano is from a, a Greek word para, 3844, which means close alongside of, and the second half of it, Lambano, Strong's number 2983, is to aggressively take. So it means to take alongside of one, someone aggressively or to personally take someone to closely bring them alongside you, even aggressively if need be. As in the sense of in the rapture, rescuing someone, snatching them away suddenly because there's, there's danger, uh, immediate danger to the person and you don't have time to explain to them why you need to take them away you just snatch them out of the out of the harm's way well this is what tim egg's trying to emphasize to take alongside to brings along the um, bdag has as the first meaning this is a very well-known and well-trusted lexicon that he refers to the, the bdag um it has as the first meaning to take into close association and then the fourth point in his logical flow using his uh explaining why he believes this is that the taken are those who are taken in rapture and the left behind are those who are left behind to be destroyed or to, to face punishment he says point number four it may well be that paul's teaching about the believers meeting yeshua in the air uh, in Thessalonians was based upon his knowledge of Yeshua's teaching as found in the gospel accounts that the angels gather the elect from one end of the sky to the other in Matthew 24 31 seems to parallel Paul's words that the believers would quote meet him in the air and when I look at this particular chart here I'll just a good time as any to show you this chart we will revisit it when we talk about rapture later on but in Matthew 24's account of the details that we've already been studying and we parallel that with first thessalonians chapter 4 particularly verses 16 and 17 we can see that there's a one-to-one -one parallel just like we already saw with matthew and revelation chapter 6 we also see these parallels in paul's writing to the church at thessalonica we have what 
in the reading from top to bottom, I'll just read down right down the middle. We have the context, which is the parousia. We have the surviving believers being delivered. Then we have the initiation of the parousia. So the surviving believers is what we might call the rapture there. The initiation of the parousia is described by Paul, which corresponds one-to-one with what Yeshua described. Then we have the universal perception where everyone's seeing what's going on, right? What I talked about, the opposite of a secret rapture, of a very loudly announced rapture, second coming. Then we have the Jesus coming with the clouds, which in Matthew and in Paul are all were previously given by Daniel in Daniel chapter seven, where the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, riding on on the clouds, coming with the clouds, is what Daniel says. I'll flash a little uh, screen grab and post to show you that reference from Daniel. Then we've got the angelic presence, right? The angels are participating in this event that shows up in Matthew. It shows up in in. Paul, and it shows up in Revelation as well. The uh, the parallels continue with the trumpet call in Matthew, which is echoed by Paul. And then lastly, we've got the gathering itself, which are the, which is the phrase that um, is high, that Tim Hag's highlighting right now when he says the gathering. So going back to Tim and concluding, so we've got the angels gathering the elect from one end of the sky to the other. This gathering that Tim talks about is clearly rapture language that cannot be ignored, even if you take the post-trib position where rapture and, and second coming are kind of right on top of one another, you still have to allow for the idea that there's this gathering and then there's this return or this gathering for uh, we go to meet Yeshua. That still has to take place. We can't get away from that. Even messianics who who are kind of rejecting secret rapture and in the end in in their um effort to reject secret rapture they end up rejecting rapture altogether they still have to acknowledge that both yeshua and paul talk about a gathering which was not shown in daniel the gathering part is part of the mystery that was hidden from the tanakh crowd from the prophets the idea that we are going to be gathered as as living group to be with Yeshua in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and I'll show this in post as well. Paul um, unambiguously says, behold, I show you a mystery. I tell you a mystery. And I'm kind of paraphrasing, but you're seeing it on the screen if you're looking at this video now in, in YouTube. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, right? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Um this this uh uh catching away to be with the lord that we who are alive uh kind of switching over to the thessalonians passage now we who are alive will be caught up to meet the lord in the air i think he says that both in corinthians and in thessalonians but particularly i'm just showing that tim Haig highlights this catching up or this gathering a language that was already given by yeshua in matthew um 2431 which is picked up by paul in first thessalonians 4 uh, 417. We meet Yeshua in the air as believers, and we meet also those who are um, raised from the dead. And continuing with Tim, and we'll finish this tonight, this is just its last piece. These data give weight to the view that, you ready for it? Those who are taken are not the ones who are taken in judgment. Tim says they are the ones who are rescued, and those who are left face the wrath and the judgment of God. So I'm reading... Um, See if I can highlight it. I'm reading this part right here. This is the part that agrees with what my perspective is as well. Those who are taken 
at the time of the rapture, I'm adding that part at the time of rapture. And I don't know if Tim Hague, again, if he agrees with pre pre pre-wrath rapture or not, I don't know for certain that he does. Um, if he's like many messianic uh, folks out there, he's not fond of any rapture language that would put us either pre pre-trib or even pre uh pre-wrath i'm sorry pre-wrath pre-trib or mid-trib anything like that he's more if he's like many messianics he's he's closer more closely aligned with post-trib if i believe if i if i'm correct but he definitely does believe that those who are taken are the ones who are rescued at the time of the writing of this commentary and those who are left would face the wrath of the judgment of god he continues this interpretation not only fits well with the references to noah that begin the paragraph in matthew but also with the story of Lot and his family being rescued out of Sodom, which Luke includes in his synoptic parallel to our text. Uh, you can find it in Luke 17, uh, 28. For the story itself, in Genesis 19:15, Lot and his family, and he reminds us now, they were physically brought out of Sodom by the two angels, right? And we have a quote here from the Genesis passage. He, Lot, hesitated. Moses wrote this, so the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they did what? They brought him out and put him outside the city. And then if you remember reading the rest of the story in Genesis, it is only after rescuing Lot and his family that fire and brimstone rained down from the Lord out of heaven on to Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy it. So in the sequence of the story that Tim Higgs reminding us about, the sequence is that the righteous, represented by Lot and his family, the righteous are taken out of the way of, of, of harm's way first, and then destruction befalls those who are ready for this, left behind in the path of destruction. So, let's read Tim Hague's notes, and then I'll put my um, my final concluding uh, commentary on top of what Tim Hague has to say. We're reading uh, this part right here. Thus, Tim, has, Tim says, to be taken means to be rescued, and to be left means to perish in the coming destruction. But the primary point of the two illustrations given in Matthew retelling is that one must be prepared for the return of Messiah. And what does it mean to be prepared? It means being engaged in faithful service to the one who is coming and thus demonstrating one's faith and faith, trust and faith in his ability to save and rescue from judgment. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? A quote from Luke 18, 18. And that's the um, point where we uh, leave off with Tim Higg. So, putting my closing comments on it and our conclusion to tonight's study, what we looked at intensely is at this idea of when will this time take place? Is it rapture or is it second coming? According to um, many uh, pre-tribbers, this event is that's described in Matthew chapter 24, verse, uh, starting probably all, all the way back as far as 30 and reading through around verse 44 or something like that. Let me pull up the um, passage. You can see it on your screen. Uh, basically, it's Matthew 24, starting with maybe verse 29 where Yeshua talks about the sun being dark and the moon not giving us light, and then he talks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with a great trumpet blast, the angels gathering together. Many uh, Christians would see this as the 
uh, second coming and not the rapture. And the reason many pre-tribbers have to hold to this, as I kind of interject and kind of tipping my hand towards what we're going to be talking about in section 10, 11, and 12 when we talk about rapture, the reason we, why many pre-tribbers have to say that this is referring to second coming and not rapture is because clearly Yeshua says immediately after the tribulation of those days, and then he describes this gathering together. Well, pre-tribbers clearly don't believe that they're going to have to go through any tribulation. They believe that Jesus is going to rescue them from that, and therefore the secret rapture that takes place is not after the tribulation. The secret rapture that takes place is prior to the tribulation, right? So when Jesus says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation, it's unmistakable that he's describing an event that is after the tribulation. And if according to pre-trib, it's a seven-year tribulation, then the events described in verse 31 is, and the uh, 30 and 31, is clearly the second coming. And so with that, when Yeshua talks about in the lower section that we have in my screen right now in blue, that two will be taken and one will be left, it's clearly the second coming. And so from that, um, the pre-tribbers would um, determine that those who are taken cannot be the church because the church was already raptured. Therefore, the taken must refer to the wicked and the left behind must refer to the righteous who come back with Yeshua on white horses to populate the millennial kingdom, the kingdom of righteousness. But Tim Haig says, no, taken must be rescued and left behind must be perishing in the destruction. And again, he's not saying that he's um, a pre-rather like I am. He's simply saying that the language that Yeshua is talking about in this part of Matthew must be referring to a rapture and thus referring to those who are taken as those who are taken in rapture. Those who are rescued, just like Lot was rescued first and then destruction poured down, just like the ark uh, Noah and his family got onto the ark first, and they were, in that sense, when they got onto the ark, they were rescued from harm's way, and then the flood came down chronologically and uh, washed away all of the unrighteous people who didn't listen to Noah. So, the point that I'm trying to highlight, and then I'm closing with this, is that whether you take it, take taken or left behind in one sense or the other, what is unmistakable is that there are two people groups. And that in the overarching sense of the final eschaton, which matches the days of Noah that Yeshua talked about in Matthew 24. In the Matthew passage, Yeshua clearly says that what takes place at the end of the age will mirror what took place in the days of Noah. And here's the takeaway. Here's the primary part that we have to grasp or we're going to lose the force of what Yeshua is trying to say. There are two people groups and one is destined for judgment and one is destined for rescue. And in the math, in the, uh, uh, the Noah passage, where the people were, the judgment fell. They were left behind to face that judgment that for Noah and his family were rescued away from. Where the destruction was, that's where the people were. That's the point I'm trying to bring up, okay? Noah and his family were lifted away and floated away to safety. But the people were synonymous with where the judgment befell. So the location of the judgment is where the people were. That's the, the point I'm trying to highlight, is where the people were, the judgment were. And where the judgment was, the people were. That's the point I'm trying to point the highlight. Same thing with Lot. 
he and his family were rescued by the angels and taken away from the area of destruction. By comparison, the wicked inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah were left behind so that where the judgment was, those people were. You following along with me? The location of the judgment is synonymous with where the people would be. So in Yeshua's description of the, that, that um, life on planet Earth when he refer, returns will be similar, the point is that in the rapture model where we are taken away and snatched up into the air, we are not what John is going to describe as the earth dwellers. The earth dwellers are the place where the people are and are you ready for this it's the place where the judgment falls when god's wrath is poured out even when the wrath of satan is poured out it's on earth but where are the believers we are not on earth we're in the air right we've met the lord in the air and we're we're to ever be with the lord according to paul's terminology in the thessalonian letter so we are not the earth dwellers we're not where the judgment is going to be poured out no matter how you take the taken or the left behind you have to agree that where the judgment falls is where the wicked are. The judgment and the wicked are synonymous with one another in location. So the, 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 to say that the, the wicked are taken out of the way must mean that the judgment is not in view. Meaning, because the judgment it falls on people who are left there to face the judgment. They are the ones who are not taken out. They're not, they're not taken out of harm's way. So when we, and when we get to Revelation, this is clearly borne out by the fact that Satan comes down to earth with great wrath in Revelation chapter 12, and that the um, uh, judgments that are poured out, starting in Revelation chapter 7 with the breaking of the seventh seal by Yeshua, the Lamb, the judgments that are poured out are clearly poured out where? on the earth dwellers, on those who dwell on the earth. So that's an important point that we're going to have to recognize, and we'll certainly uh, seize on that when the time comes for us to look at that in the book of Revelation. But that'll do it for uh, eschatology, of biblical, uh, uh, biblical, eschatology of Biblical Study of End Time Events with this look at Taken and Left Behind. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well youtube.com forward slash c forward slash tetse torah ministries if you do hit my website uh my youtube channel there be sure to uh, take notice that i update the uh site essentially daily uploading videos daily make sure then to subscribe hit the bell for notifications leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on and be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles okay just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, 
during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies. Um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Arvin Lyman Hanavi. Let's turn now to Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism, where we've been looking at Proverbs 8.23, which reads from the NIV version, I, wisdom, was appointed from eternity from the beginning before the world began. And we're contrasting the biblical Unitarian perspective, which is a Christian non-Trinitarian denomination that rejects Trinity. They believe there's one God who is the Father of Jesus, the man. Jesus is fully human. He is not divine. He's not deity. He was born into the world, uh, born and brought into the world, born of his parents, uh, Miriam and, and um, uh, gosh, what's his father's name? It's not David. Um, I just draw a complete blank. Mary, Mary, Mary and Joseph. Thank you. There we go. So Miriam and Joseph brought Jesus into the world as a human being, and he's not divine, but he is in fact glorified. God glorified him and exalted him and allowed Jesus, the human, to be brought to the point where he sits at the right hand of the Father. He is the only human being whereby we can worship him, not as God, but worship him as Messiah. And we must, in fact, believe on his name for salvation. So, Biblical Unitarian has that part right, or the Unitarian uh, belief system has that part right, I believe, that they have the, the Christianity part, the salvation part right. Uh, to the degree that they believe that Jesus is the only one that you can believe for salvation. But they they rob him of his divinity. They strip him of his divinity and make him a mere human being. As far as Holy Spirit, what do they say? If I'm correct, if I remember, they believe the Holy Spirit is just another name for God the Father, who is uh, uh, thrice holy and altogether spirit. Right, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him as spirit in the truth, the book of John tells us. So, um, Unitarians believe that the Holy Spirit is simply another name for God the Father, who is the only God, and therefore there is no third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit that comes upon believers is simply just that. It's the Spirit of God that's poured upon us, poured out on us in um, what we call anointing, uh, or inspiration, or uh, comes upon us for power, etc., etc. So, Trinitarian belief system, by contrast, believes that there is one God who is made up of three persons, three hypostases, um, one homoousius, right, one essence, one nature that is God. There's only one God, and there's only one who can hold this position as God in both Old and New Testaments, and yet he reveals himself as three separate hypostases that have three different roles that are are um, described in functions. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Father eternally begets the Son, and the Son sends forth the Spirit. 
we call this spiration. So, unless you're of the filioque debate and believe that the Holy Spirit only proceeds from the Father alone, thus we have this debate between Catholic and Greek Orthodox as to from whom does the Spirit proceed, Father and Son, or from Father alone, or from Son alone, you know, which way does it go? But either way, Trinitarians believe that there's a third person of God known as the Holy Spirit. And that's the brand of Christianity that I myself hold to. I'm a Trinitarian believer. Um, but I'm not here to throw non-Trinitarian believers under the bus when it comes to salvation. But what we are looking at is Proverbs. Who is wisdom? Who is Lady Wisdom? Is Lady Wisdom Jesus? Is Lady Wisdom merely personification of Jesus or personification of God's power as demonstrated at the point of creation, which is picked up by the New Testament writers again in personification and given to Jesus the Son. And there's a passage that corresponds with Jesus as the wisdom of God, which causes Trinitarians to believe that wisdom in the Old Testament is in fact not merely personification, but it's in fact Jesus. What we're determining in this particular study, and I'm trying not to drag it out, but it's going quite long, longer than I envisioned it to be originally. What we're trying to uh, demonstrate, what I'm trying to demonstrate, is merely this. And I'm telling you this at the beginning, in case I lose you, because of the forest and the trees principle. There are three ways that I have determined to understand this passage in the book of Proverbs, Lady Wisdom. One is that Proverbs that Solomon is simply using personification to refer to God's creative power at the point of creation, at the time when he's creating the world, because the the passage is clearly echoing the um, passage in the book of Genesis. We're going to turn to the um, Greek here tonight in the Septuagint to see how this is borne out even more definitely. We're also noticing that there are two Trinitarian viewpoints. One of the Trinitarian viewpoints believes that God is tripart, that he's triune, there are one God and yet three persons, and yet Proverbs is still only talking about personification. It's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about God's personification of his power, of his wisdom that was utilized by God to create the world. And it is an attribute of God that is eternal in both of those aspects, in Biblical Unitarian's version, as well as the Trinitarian version, which deals with personification. Both agree that God's wisdom is eternal. It was not something that God had to create. It's not something that he lacked. By contrast, there is a, and I'll show you this real quick, There is a Jehovah's Witness version of wisdom and Jesus that says that God created Jesus as a creature, a construct, a being, a demigod, a lesser god, a mini-god, a mini-me, a a, a lesser Jehovah, lesser Yahweh, um, whatever you want to call it. And this thing, yes, I call it a thing because it's insulting to Jesus to, to say that he was created. This thing that God whipped up, this creature, went on to create the rest of humanity and the rest of the universe, etc., etc. But the Jehovah's Witnesses, I've demonstrated, paint themselves into a corner when they say that wisdom must have been created by God. Because if that's the case, then Jehovah himself lacked wisdom. And if he did, then God isn't all wise. And the Jehovah's Witness has to backpedal and say, no, that's not what we mean. But then if we follow through with their logic that wisdom was not created, then we have to agree that wisdom was eternal. And if they definitely agree that wisdom is Jesus, then according to their logic, then Jesus 
is eternal because Jesus is wisdom. And they have to say, no, that's not what we mean either. So using the graphic that you can see on your chart, which is a video that is available on YouTube, then you, they find themselves in a pickle. If wisdom was created by God, then God isn't all wise. And if wisdom was not created by God, but wisdom is Jesus, then Jesus is eternal. And they don't want to admit to either one of those two conclusions that God isn't all wise and that Jesus is eternal. They don't want to they don't want to go there. But what we agree with as biblical Unitarians and Trinitarian um, biblical unit Trinitarians is that God is all wise. And they did not need to create wisdom. He possessed it all along. Just like it says here, I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. So God didn't have to create wisdom in order to create the world. So this is the view we're working through. The um, the view that wisdom is personification. That's one perspective of three. The second view is that wisdom is um personification but wisdom is a trinitarian part of god's uh, makeup um wisdom is a part of the eternal one god who's three persons so the trinitarian perspective of personification is what i'm trying to say so those are the one and the two of three one is the non-trinitarian perspective of of personification of wisdom the second is the trinitarian perspective of personification and the third view that i haven't gotten to is the fact is the, the view that wisdom is actually jesus it's not just personification but yet it's trinitarian so those are the three views we haven't gotten to the third one yet but we'll get to it in time we've got proverbs pulled up in um in this uh, view of the bible that you can see on your screen right now that uh shows up backing up to verse 22 and working away from 20 22 to 23 to 24 and even 25 and there's some poetic parallelism going on in the english as well as the hebrew where the the um writer says that the lord possessed me we got the word right there in english which corresponds with the hebrew word um kanani in the hebrew over on the right side of my page and then this is also picked up in parallel fashion um in verse 23 where where wisdom says that i was established and the verb here on the on the uh, corresponding hebrew is nasakti and we looked at these in the past so i'm not going too deep into it right now but the parallelism is that the writer is in both places describing wisdom's place alongside of god back along back when the world was created which means wisdom was not a tool that god created in order to then create the world rather wisdom was a part of his tool belt that he was in possession of from eternity from all along from from everlasting from the the, the this far back is what the hebrews would call um uh olam which is what the hebrew says may olam nisakti right from everlasting i was established and then in verse 24 the parallelism parallelism continues with when he says when there were no depths uh speaking of the depths of the earth and when that was um when when that time was i was brought forth holalti in the hebrew the greek term uh, the, the hebrew term this brought forth carries over into verse 25 where he says before the mountains were settled before the hills i was brought forth and the writer uses that same hebrew word once again holalti so we looked at that in the past go back and listen to previous uh lessons either um number show number 246 45 44 43 etc etc so now we're ready to turn directly into looking at some of the greek 
from the Septuagint. So we got starting in verse 20. I suppose I could have gone up to verse 22. Yeah, Yahweh possessed me in the beginning. Beginning, we've got um, Kanani again. The Greek word this time is um, right here, ektesin, which is the parallel for the uh, the Hebrew of Kanani right there. But either way, the English is that he established me. And then in verse 23, the, the verse in question, I was set up from everlasting. The Hebrew is nasachti. Well, then we've got um, pro to ionas ethomeliosin me in arke. And so I believe it's this word uh, that I've got um, highlighted. Let me just blow that up for you. You can say pro to ionas. Let me highlight it. Ethomeliosin is, um, if I click on it and open up uh, the uh, definition here, this is uh, coming from a group word. Et, uh, which means which is rooted in um uh thelemio the i'm sorry and if i click on that well then we can see that it is the word to lay a basis for to lay a foundation for to found to ground to settle to establish to erect so this is the root verb that is um, carried over into the um, translation, uh, uh, which doesn't show up in that version. Um, shows up, let me see, it, it's not carried over into this particular um, Greek, unless you're looking at the word made there. Um, but otherwise, I think it's, it's, it, it doesn't carry over in that verse, uh, this translation. But when we get to verse 24, before the mountains were settled, before all the hills, he begets me. Verse 25, before the mountains were settled, before the hills were brought forth. Um, and then you can see that the, the translation of verse 25 from the English doesn't really match the Greek, doesn't really match the uh, Hebrew. That's why I said that um, the, the, the verses don't kind of line up in the uh, from the Hebrew to the Greek to the English translation that we're looking at here. Um, instead, I believe in verse 44, uh, or verse, um, uh, maybe verse 22 and 23, the sense is captured about even before he made the world, um, then I was brought forth. And of course we saw that, um, in verse 23, I was set up from everlasting, but then the, the second clause is from the beginning ever the earth was. But in the, in the Greek translation, it doesn't say that, um, anything about, I was set up from everlasting. It simply has the part, even before you made the depths, before the fountains of the world came forth. So there's no corresponding um, aspect of the first clause. I was set up from the beginning. So that's um, the, the kind of the dilemma we're looking at. But having said all that, let's turn um, a little bit further into the Greek, which, as I mentioned last week, is carried along into John's passage in John 1 1 where John talks about this word which was with God <coughs> excuse me this word which was with God is actually God and yet it's this word which is the agent of God which was used to create the world but John locates the logos the word outside of creation just like the writer to the book of Proverbs did as well he locates wisdom outside or before the creation took place. Meaning, remember, in the Hebrew mindset, there are only two spheres of existence. There's either eternity or there is temporality. And in the um, narratives that we read about in the Bible, God exists in this, uh, what we call, dimension of eternality. He's the exclusive 
occupant of this sphere until God created time and the universe and everything in it, and thus we get brought into the picture as well. But obviously we're temporal, but God himself is not. He's outside of time. He's outside of space in that regard. So he exists in that sphere, that that place, that um, dimension that is given over to the word Olam in the Hebrew or eternity in our English. Well, John locates the Logos in that same sphere, in that same place, by using the Greek word Arke, when he says en Arke, which is in the beginning, what he means at the beginning, before there was anything created, which is only the place where God can dwell. Because before anything existed, then the only things that existed was God. So, using that as our... Um, um, Launching point like we did last week. Let's look at the Septuagint Greek. This part is not very long in my study. I just briefly touch on how the Greek is in harmony with the Hebrew, even though sometimes Greek strays because the Septuagint was put together as a translation of Hebrew, but it's not necessarily what we would today probably call um, a Christian translation. It was put together by Jewish people, so they don't really have a Trinity axe to grind. They're not going to try to be making a case for the for wisdom being the second person of the Trinity. So when they put together the translation, they're simply going with this idea that God is eternal, His attributes are eternal, and He doesn't need to create wisdom in order to create the world. They're also going with the um, uh, notion that's agreed upon both in Unitarian as well as Trinitarian camps, that God is the sole creator, right? I'm a biblical Trinitarian, but I believe that God is the sole creator. But that doesn't mean that I believe that the Father is the sole creator. Understand where I'm going with that? God is, I'm sorry, Father is God, but Son is also God. Therefore, when I say God created the, the worlds, I mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just like that graphic that I keep flashing on my screen and post that has uh, creation on the left side of a screen and underneath it, we've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, Creator and Creation include God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit on the left side, separated by this baby blue line running from top to bottom, for the right side, which is Creation and everything else. And you're seeing this in post if, you've, if you're watching this video right now. But you're not seeing it if you're in the Skype class right now. I apologize. So, maybe the next one of these days, I'll just make a screen grab and then you'll be able to see it. But the point I'm trying to highlight is that in the ancient Septuagint, which was, which was put together well before there were any Christian translations, in fact, it was put together well before Christ was on the scene, you know, at least 200 years, I believe, before, 200, 250, maybe even 300, before there was a what we might call a Christianity or, or a Jesus Christ himself. Well, then the ancient Hebrews envisioned Lady Wisdom as the personification of one of God's attributes wisdom. So, let's look at the Septuagint Greek in my uh, commentary. This next section of this um, short uh, essay that I wrote is entitled, Enter the Septuagint Greek. So, let's read this part. It's very short. I think I can get it in the, less, in the 10 minutes that we have left in this particular commentary, in this particular uh, section of my um, study. Proverbs 8.23 in the Septuagint Greek, I go on to say translation, reads as follows. And I already read this, but I'll read it for you one more time. Uh, it says, Pro, I'm sorry, it says, Pra to Ionas et the Meliosin me in Arche pra to tain gain poiesai. And that's Proverbs 8.23 out of the LXX. And I didn't pull the English translation in for verse 23, but if I use John Barrich's translation that you can see on your screen, then 
oops, then I could have used either this one, which is from the Alexandrinus translation of the Greek, even before he made the depths, before the foundation of the water came forth, or the identical translation from the um, Vaticanus version of the Septuagint. I could have said this one, even before he made the depths, before the foundation of the water came forth. But in uh, both cases, which are identical, the Greek is slightly different. And so that's why, if you notice, the uh, Alexandrinus has pra to Ionas et the Meliosin may in Arche, and then it stops. But, which is what the, uh, gr uh, the translation um I believe is is uh, following but if we go with this one the vaticanus version has some extra wording proud to ionas uh, at the meliosin may in arche and then that's where the other one stopped but now we have this last clause uh proud to tain gain poiesi which is um i believe let me look at the english ones um which is actually part of this phrase before he made the earth pra to tain gain poiesi i believe that's um uh capturing that part um from the uh translation that we're looking at a bit confusing if you're not following greek but don't worry i'm going to explain what the words mean in my little uh essay here so i go on to say that the phrase pra to Ionas means before the ages or before time began. And I go on to say, and, and again, this is just very short to the point, very kind of sixth grade level essay that I put together here, not meant to be exceptionally um, uh, academic, um, you know, so that you can't understand it. Uh, I meant it to be very, very easy to understand. You can, you can almost, you know, put it in memes or things like that, which originally I was envisioning when I put this together, but I didn't create any little screenshots that look like memes. But um, this phrase I went on to say emphasizes what I believe is the eternal nature of wisdom, which existed before the creation of the world so again the jehovah's witness version of a non-trinitarian model places jesus as the first thing that god created and this thing goes on to create the rest of the universe and the rest of the world and thus the jehovah's witnesses which are the modern day socinians they can have their cake and eat it too by saying that god is the creator yet jesus is the creator because god created jesus and then that thing created the rest of the universe that thing called jesus created the rest of the universe biblical unitarian disagrees they say no we're not socinians we're actually ancient um uh socinian i'm sorry did i say socinian uh uh, strike that uh jehovah's witnesses are modern day arianisms they're modern day arians right so arianism is what they uh hail from arianism is a very old uh christological heresy that existed back in the first century first second third centuries and it is from there that the the trend the uh, jehovah's witnesses kind of carry that same errant theology along into their teachings of jesus being a creature but the biblical unitarians of today trace their roots back to the socinians and the socinianism is not even um first century it's like later i'll put a little screen grab to show you who it's uh, named after faustus socinius or whatever his name was a, an italian christian who rejected trinity and instead embraced this idea that there's only one god in a strict monotheistic sense of the word and therefore jesus was not a creature 
Rather, Jesus was merely a human being, right? So, uh, but I say, again, that um, this phrase before the ages refers to the eternal nature of wisdom, which if you're going to say that this is Jesus, fits nicely with the Trinitarian model. And if you're going to say it's personification, it fits there as well. But I um, continue. Looking at the Greek, the word uh, ethemeliosin means founded or established, like I showed you earlier with the root word. And this word, in my research, emphasizes the divine origin, which was established by God before the creation of the world. So we're talking about the divine origin. Again, um, this is poetic language that the, pro that the uh, writer is using. So we can't be too terribly dogmatic when we're trying to understand what it's referring to just like the book of psalms when we're dealing with poetry the nature of the language is not meant to be overly dogmatic overly uh what we might call um theological it's meant to be um just like poetry function functions in our day right in modern poetry there's there's a lot of um complementary language when we say parallelism god is good god is great you know which one is he is he good or is he great is it a contrast no it's parallelism they're meant just to to speak in in majestic terms to complement god using more than one phrase so, uh, to say that um that wisdom existed or was founded or established by god doesn't mean that god created this wisdom rather any more than god himself needed to create any of his attributes he's eternal so that's kind of what i'm where i'm going with that i continue the phrase in arche which is borrowed by john in john 1 1 when we look at john's passage of uh this description of the um creation account and the word which was present with god uh, we have on our screen here in the beginning was the word the word was with God and the word was God the phrase in the beginning in our English renderings of our Bible if you're able to follow along with the Greek this is a verse that's well known to many uh, pastors and Christians the first two words are in arche right in arche in halagas kai halagas in pros ton theon kai theos in uh, uh, in halagas so Paul, um, almost said Paul. Uh, John is telling us that this logos existed when in Arche, which, as I say in my commentary, the phrase in Arche, which is picked up uh, in the uh, proverb passage, but it also shows up. And let me just show you this. I didn't have this open up earlier, but I I do want to show it to you. Let me turn to the book of Genesis, chapter one, verse one in the english it has in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and the hebrew says Breshit bara Elohim eight but guess what the greek says it says in arke epoesen hotaustan uronan kai tain gain guess what the first two words are in arke yeah which in john barrich's english translation below says in the beginning god made the sky and the earth the uran is the sky and the gain is the earth there so what's the point i'm trying to highlight is that in genesis we have in arche which i'll highlight for you for those who can't read greek and arche there's the greek of genesis 1 1 
me put those that way. When we look at Proverbs and bring up verse 23, we have it showing up right here in Arke, right in the beginning, which doesn't show up in the English version there, shows up in the English version uh, of verse um, 22, right there, uh, established me before the time was in the beginning. It shows up in the English of 22, but it shows up in the verse 23 of the Greek, in Arke. And then in John 1, 1, there we go, in Arke, which all mean the same thing. So, in the beginning. So, going back to my commentary, this phrase, um, in Arke, means in the beginning, in the, in the English. And this phrase echoes the opening words of the book of Genesis, emphasizing the pre-existence of wisdom before the creation of the world. That's the point I'm trying to highlight uh, for this short part of my essay. I continue. The phrase pra tu tain gain poiesai means before he made the earth. And um, it doesn't take rocket science to understand that before he made the earth refers to the time frame or the chamber that I was mentioning earlier where it's outside of creation, before he made the earth. So the writer of the book of Proverbs is at the very least saying that wisdom existed prior to the creation. Now, whether you want to insert wisdom into this imaginary time slot that the Jehovah's Witnesses um, fabricate, that is the time where Jesus was created, you know, that time that's not spoken about in Scripture, but they want to say that it exists there anyway, that could be debated from the writer's perspective here in Proverbs, right? Proverbs says that wisdom existed before he made the earth. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses are saying, yeah, of course wisdom existed before God made the earth, because God had to create wisdom first, and then wisdom created the earth, and wisdom didn't create itself. Okay, yeah, right. So, um... As I go on to uh, say in my own little um, short essay here, this phrase, before you made the earth, emphasizes the priority of wisdom over the creation of the world. And that bears relevance when we begin to realize that Jesus is described elsewhere as the firstborn of God's creation. The word firstborn does not mean first thing that God created, nor does it mean the first uh, uh, son that was born of God. As if Jesus was the one born first, and then all the other sons that we are were born after that. Firstborn does refer to firstborn in human language, but for Jesus, he is eternally begotten of the Father. And so it speaks of the preeminence that Jesus enjoys in God's family, the family known as Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son is the preeminent one over all creation. Even the Holy Spirit isn't given that title of the preeminent, the firstborn over creation. Only Jesus is given that uh, title. Let me, um, I'll in screen in post production. I'll flash the screen where I'm pulling that language of firstborn of God's creation. Uh, it shows up in the New Testament. So Job's witnesses mistakenly think that this refers to Jesus being the first creature that was created by God, but that's an incorrect view of that. That demonstrates their lack of understanding of the Hebraic concept behind the word firstborn when it refers to the preeminent son uh, designated by the father, the one who is designated to um, carry on the family inheritance and to receive all the family um, authority passed down when the father uh, is out of the picture. 
Jesus occupies that place in the uh, in the Trinity um, concept. There, He's the firstborn over all creation. So, in like fashion, what I said is that wisdom being spoken of as before He made the earth indicates that He has priority over the creation of the world uh i continue in this short little essay and we're running out of time here so let me conclude here the septuagint greek translation of proverbs 8:23, in my opinion is perfectly consistent with the trinitarian understanding of proverbs 8:23. i continue the trinitarian understanding of proverbs 8:23 is that the wisdom of god mentioned in this verse refers to the second person of the trinity the son and that's in the in the more strict sense of the trinitarian understanding as i've already mentioned a lesser sense of the trinitarian understanding of of proverbs 8 23 is that wisdom is um merely a personification of one of god's attributes that goes on to be also equated with the personification of which jesus is jesus is the personification of wisdom but wisdom is not jesus so it's a short step from that version of trinity to saying that jesus actually is lady wisdom um but uh again there are two versions two flavors of trinitarian uh in that regard i go on to say according to this view in the strict view where wisdom is jesus the son is begotten from eternity by the father and is therefore co-eternal and co-equal with the father two persons one is father one is son Three persons, one is Father, one is Son, one is Holy Spirit. But we're only talking about Father and Son when we're talking about begotten and begettal language. Father begets Son. We don't have language that shows that the Father begets the Holy Spirit. And we don't have any language that shows that the, the Holy Spirit is the Son. So thus, we, we maintain the distinctions in the economic model of the Trinity where there's Father begetting Son and Son sending forth the Spirit three persons working together yet in the ontological model of the trinity we're talking about the nature of this one god we have co-eternal and co-equality let's conclude i go on to say that the septuagint greek translation emphasizes the eternal and divine nature of wisdom which is consistent with the trinitarian understanding of the son as co-eternal and co-equal with the father so what are my conclusions to this short essay tonight in conclusion the septuagint greek translation of proverbs 8:23 emphasizes the eternal and divine nature of wisdom which as i keep maintaining is consistent with the trinitarian understanding of the son as co-eternal and co-equal with the father and i'm going to keep saying that over and over again because there are so many people who watch my videos and read my comments or read my read my responses to other people's comments and they think that i'm espousing to three gods i am not i reject that that is heresy there are others who watch my commentaries who believe that I'm a strict monotheist like most Jews, and they believe that I'm referring to one God who merely manifests himself as three faces or three personalities or three manifestations, three um, apparitions or whatever you want to call it, three uh, uh, people or something, but there's only one God. And I reject that um perspective that language because it sounds like you're describing um modalism 
where there's one God who just wears three masks or aren't truly three people who are um, co-equal and co-eternal. But so I have to keep emphasizing this language of the Trinitarian model that I that I'm holding to one God, three persons, one God, the three persons as co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. All three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. There was never a time when the Father didn't exist. Likewise, there was never a time when the Son didn't exist, and there was never a time when the Spirit didn't exist. There's no creation of a Son, like the Jehovah's Witnesses say. There's no non-existence of the Spirit, like the Biblical Unitarians say, the non-existence of a third person of Spirit. Right? There are three persons. There's one God, or as James White is fond of saying, and I'm fond of quoting, one what and three who's. So I go on to say, in Proverbs here, the phrase before the ages emphasizes that wisdom existed before time began. And the word founded, as we looked at earlier, emphasizes that wisdom was established by God. Founded, right? God is the one who founded wisdom. And it's put in quotes here to demonstrate that it's not something that God had to create that he lacked. Rather, just like begetting is an eternal begetting, and just like um, existing, uh, or created or brought forth was an eternal bringing forth. Um, then we also have founded at the Meliosin is an eternal founding. God always possessed wisdom, right? Always. I conclude the phrase in the beginning, which is the um, the, the 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 part that really kind of cements the whole story together, right? In the beginning. It echoes the opening words of the book of Genesis, emphasizing the pre-existence of wisdom before the creation of the world. There's a lot of repetition here in this short little essay because there are so many people who are misunderstanding what I'm trying to say, so I have to keep saying it over and over again. Um, the pre-existence of wisdom before the creation of the world. And then in conclusion to my um, uh, summary on that part, the phrase, before he made the earth emphasizes the priority of wisdom over the creation of the world before he made the earth. So, that'll do it for this section. Next week, let me just scroll down and look at the length of the summary and the conclusions. There's one paragraph, two paragraphs, three paragraphs, four paragraphs, five, six, seven. That's a long one there, number seven. And then we got some bullet points. And then the study is basically done with a, con a final concluding paragraph and some, and some uh, what do we call it, footnotes. So, doesn't look like I'm going to be able to finish this next week unless I just read through it and, and without giving any, any conclusion, any commentary along with it. So, we're basically going to be done with this in either one or two weeks because I don't see it going past two weeks. Possibly one, but might maybe two. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. Abba, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that you sent your son into the world to do the impossible, to draw all men unto himself, to make a sacrifice for sin that was an eternal sacrifice, and yet paid the price for the eternal sin that was plaguing humanity. I call it eternal because from your perspective, you exist in the sphere where sin has come up to your face and you are an eternal God and therefore you cannot allow sin to dwell in your presence. So you 
set forth a solution. You sent your son into the world as a human being to deal with sin as the perfect sacrifice at that level. And you paid the price you with his very blood. And so because of that, I now stand redeemed and I now live because Christ died. Like Crystal Lewis, the um, uh, uh, Christian contemporary music singer that I'm quoting, I now live because Christ died. So thank you, Father, for allowing your son to pay the ultimate sacrifice, for sending him into the world, for having him demonstrate his obedience to the Father by paying the price. Thank you that because of this, I can now be counted among the righteous, among those who you will send your son to rescue when the time comes for him to return to planet Earth and to establish his everlasting kingdom, which begins with a thousand years, but extends on into eternity, ultimately, for those of us who are among the righteous. Thank you, Lord, that this is all accomplished because of his finished work. Not because of things that I can do, not because of my righteousness, not because of my standing um, among human beings, not because I'm a Jewish, not because I'm a, 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 a son of Christian parents, not because they belong to this denomination or that denomination, but because of your intense love for me, I can have this uh, place among the righteous in your family. So thank you for the studies. Thank you for the students who join me week after week. Continue to bless them and protect them and raise them up. And give us all a voice, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen.